the 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. 
Let's get down to the basics of what this is really about. This is about the Prime Minister's ideological attachment to keeping COVID restrictions and mandates. 63% of Canadians want the restrictions and mandates to end. Conservatives presented a motion yesterday asking simply for a plan, but the Prime Minister is in denial and is ignoring the science. He might as well be back at the cottage because he's doing nothing productive or constructive to help this situation. Can the Prime Minister tell Canadians when he will end the divisive, outdated and unscientific mandate and restrictions. The right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, like I said, this is a time for responsible leadership to end these blockades. Unfortunately, the Conservatives continue to play partisan games. Uh, the Conservative member of Provence just yesterday... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut off the uh, Prime Minister just for a second. And just, I mean, heckling is usually throwing one comment out. Clever, hopefully, although not always necessary. But what I'm hearing is someone bullying and trying to drown someone out. That's not heckling. I just want everyone to take a deep breath, and I'll let the Prime Minister start from the top, please. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Unfortunately, we see that even in a moment of extremely challenging times, when uh, people are moving forward with responsible leadership and responsible tools, the Conservatives can't help themselves but play class, crass political games and divide. The Conservative member for Provence just yesterday embraced the leaders of this blockade and amplified their cause. The Conservative member for Yorkton Melville said this weekend that blockaders who ripped down Fencing around our national war memorial are patriots. The conservative leadership contender from Carleton continues to say he's proud. So I'm going to stop this as they, he get, the prime minister himself gets interrupted because on the floor of the Canadian, I, I'm not even sure what, what this uh, house is called. Um, you can hear that there is quite a bit of travail today. Uh, this is Tuesday, the 15th of February, 2022. And we're, we're diverting Dr. Koontz from our uh, talk about financials to talk about real-time tyranny. There's a nice uh, article that came out from the Federalist just today, Molly Hemingway, a nice LCMS name, uh, titled Press Calls Trump a fascist for opposing violent riots, but Trudeau's a hero for treating peaceful protesters like terrorists. That's our topic for today. I'm just going to let you start hitting it. It is a remarkable time. And I, I think that the most basic thing to say about it as about so much of the past two years is that we need to stop thinking about these kinds of things as exceptions or emergencies. And we'll be talking about today the role that claiming that something is an emergency or an exception plays in governmental power. But this is also something you can use in your daily life, right? Emergencies and exceptional states and unusual things are not exceptional in the sense that they tell you something that is never of any other value, right? And I think a lot of people have treated, especially the past two years, worldwide, but particularly in what used to call themselves without irony, liberal democracies, we have treated these as if they are unusual times. And therefore, they don't tell you anything. It would sort of be like saying, well, you know, what color is the sky? Well, we almost never teach our children that the sky is black or gray, even if that's true at night, right? We, we treat the daytime as normal. Well, <laughs> But sometimes the sky is black or gray, and you can see the stars then. So certain states of being allow you to see things you wouldn't see at other times. 
we're not seeing things in the Canadian government or our families or our churches that are, I think, exceptional. We're seeing things that we would not otherwise see, but they reveal much greater realities to you, right? So I think what they want you to do is for a time, you just suspend your judgment and you just go along with it, right? So you go along with some of the things that we're going to talk about in Canada today, or you go along with, well, this is what it's like at our Thanksgiving, or this is what it's like in our church. And you need to realize, <laughs> yeah, maybe that state of affairs will end, right? So that so now you, you're, you're allowed to go to a grocery store and you don't have to be vaccinated. So that's, that's coming to an end. You don't have to wear a mask. But what did you just learn about the people that handed those things down? Because those are still the same people, right? The state of affairs may have ended, but the people are still there. And it's not like the quote, exceptional situation didn't tell you something about those people. Yeah, it tells you they're godless. It, it, I mean, it tells you all kinds of things. And the reference in the clip to go back to the cottage is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, is, a, is a reference to something you learned about Justin Trudeau is that he wanted to and, and needed to run away from Ottawa for at least a time in order to avoid the opprobrium of his own people. You know, he could not, he could not come out in front of them. He could not stand in front of them. He could not visit them. He could not see what they were doing. I mean, you know, credit where credit's due. Even Nixon reportedly visited protesters at night when they were camped out in Washington. And he's allegedly like the closest we've ever gotten to Hitler, according to certain left-wing historians of American history. Trudeau ran away from his own people who brought children, bouncy castles, um, you know, uh, record tables for street parties, brought trucks. And yeah, he couldn't- They're singing, he, we are the world. Yeah, <laughs> he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't be near them, you know, when they were, I don't know, singing, oh, Canada, right? So these, these situations might be called by governments exceptional or emergency situations, but what they really are is these are times of revelation, that is of- unveiling. That's the older sense of that word. Not, not that you're getting something from on high, but that something that was once hidden is unveiled. That's what apocalyptic means. Hidden, now unveiled. Unseen, now seen. So the thing that I'm seeing is something that's been a theme of ours uh, for two years now, I think, so the listeners yeah. won't be entirely surprised. But it is, it is that a formerly perceived unity that mm -hmm. I now attribute to mass formation psychosis, not including COVID, pre-COVID. I think mm -hmm. we as a whole uh, were hypnotized into this uh, Americana, this unity of it's like this and it'll be like this and we all think it should be like this, that that's not there at all. And it's, it's never really been there, um, at least not for a generation. And that within the elite, whatever that means, and I think that that's fractal. So I think that can take different shapes in different places, you know, whether it's in your workplace or whether it's in the, the government, uh, that the elite generally is going to do what's good for him. And that this is irregardless of any kind of ideology about us. And seeing that for me has been the impetus to get off the bus of us <laughs> uh, and say, um, I'm going to get back onto this, well, arc. I'm going to get on a ship um, where I know the us is something far more substantial uh, than a nice story about Paul Bunyan. 
Even even those kind of national myths, you know, so the United States has this phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most Commonwealth countries, former British colonies, dominions at one time, like Canada, will have a similar constitutional phrase, peace, order, and good government. And because of various things in Canadian history, the role of adherence, of loyalty, especially of the formerly American loyalists who went there to Canada, especially from New England during our revolution. The contrast between our nations have been uh, drawn, and I think as we now learn, overdrawn. Not only do we have more in common with them historically, especially Canada, let alone Australia, than basically any other nation in the world being both Anglo-colonial endeavors in origin. But in addition to that, even if you weren't somehow founded by the British Empire, you probably, wherever you are in the world, are dealing with some set of government, what we heard in the clip, as mandates and restrictions. And so a question has become practically universal, regardless of your historical form of government or historical origins, which is, are you going to go along with this or not? So that's why you've gotten a multiplication in many countries, at least attempts at freedom convoys, right? So this is something that we, you know, the listeners know the show better than we do. So somebody's going to remember if we talked about truckers before, but the role of the people that actually maintain infrastructure in modern economies, stopping that role in something that if this were 1921 would be called a general strike. And this could apply to plumbers. This could apply, I'm not giving anybody ideas, truckers, plumbers, the people that actually make the world function, right? So people not involved in the financial services industry, for example, right? Hard functioning. Is the building livable? Can people go to work? Can they live in their homes? Are their pipes bursting? Will anybody fix that? Those people make the world go around, right? They're not just the salt of the earth in the sense that they are down to earth. They're the salt of the earth in that they preserve life as we know it. So what if they just stop? Well, people all over the world are thinking about that now. They're thinking about Australia, France, Belgium. There seem to be more farmers involved in Europe than there are here. Obviously, along the Alberta-Montana border, Montanans are thinking about this too. Ontario-Michigan uh, border, Michiganders are thinking about this. So we have one thing that has been revealed is that even in countries where the contrast between us has been very starkly drawn, especially by Canadians, between Canadians and Americans, is less of a contrast than either it formerly was or maybe than it ever was because we face similar challenges to the functioning of life. Do I have to put this in my body to have a life? By government mandate, yes, I do. Do I want to go along with that? This is a stark choice. And it's not, I would point out, actually a choice that a lot, at least according to statistics, right? So, you know, grain of salt there. But according to official statistics, the vast majority of truckers in Canada are vaccinated. This is really about the principle of the thing, not about their own preference, right? And so the argument is, <laughs> is even easier to make because they're not, they're not protesting in favor of, you know, this is, <laughs> this is illegitimate mass gene therapy, what they're doing with the vaccination. I mean, they could have done that. And I'm sure somebody is. They're just saying you don't have, you shouldn't have to do this to make a living. 
Mm-hmm. That's all they're saying. And the reason it's happening right now, the precipitating cause is just the expiration of certain grace periods or exemption periods, first on the part of the Canadian government and now also on the part of, and this rarely gets mentioned, our government also will not let unvaccinated Canadian truckers in at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, That grace period ended and that day the freedom convoys got started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The thing that, uh, I I don't know how this is going to turn out at all, but I know what it looks like. And that is this. It's, you have a bully on the playground who, who thinks he's really going to run the playground. And then three little kids band together and stand up to him. Yeah. And he begins to cry. And right. he says, that's not fair. You can't do this. <laughs> right? So, so yeah. here you have a peaceful protest, a strike of workers, and they say, that's illegal. Now, I don't, I don't know the laws of Canada. I don't know. Um, but again, the stunning thing, and this gets back to Hemingway's article, is that our elites have been encouraging violent riots for two plus years now. There was just a, a uh, Antifa uh, night on the town in Minneapolis last week where they were spray painting kill cops, throwing rocks through windows, and this got no coverage, unless you're following Andy Ngo. It got no coverage in the mainstream media. So the, the same group that, that I, and it's, it's bizarre to me, and, um, and, and yet they, they sit there and they, they just want to kind of yell it down. Yep. My, my read on this is that it's not going to work for Trudeau, but my... The, I don't know if I'd call it the child in me. Um, my fear is there's going to be weapon fire at some point on these poor kids holding the flags, dancing in the bounce houses. And this is going to get ugly um, because that's the kind of thing that a scared coward does is is they escalate the thing in some kind of uh, unobvious way. I don't know what your thoughts are there. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I am concerned about that, too, because of at least uh, two things, one in the more distant past of Canada, one pretty recent. Um, The more distant past is that an act, which we can explain in more detail if it's necessary later on in the hour, called the War Measures Act that was passed for the sake of World War I and then also activated in World War II, was activated only a third time before it was supplanted. And that third time is in 1970, when you had the kidnapping of a British consul and a government minister in Canada by French-Canadian separatists, Quebecois separatists, the minister Laporte would actually die, probably accidentally, in custody. The British subject would be released later on. But this was an enormous legitimacy crisis for the Canadian government in 1970. And Justin Trudeau's, (laughs) we can talk about this, but at least his legal legal father, um, (laughs) his legal father, Pierre Trudeau, at the time prime minister, brought into effect the War Measures Act. And because it's 1970 at the time, he faced criticism from the right and the left. Okay. So the father of what's now the new Democratic Party, Tommy Douglas, who was an old union organizer from Saskatchewan, criticized this severely. You, you can't, it's not Canada if you do this to people. If you, I mean, if you activate, you put the military on Canadian streets, that's not what it's for. Okay. But that's what he did for a limited amount of time. Eventually, and now this might play into the you know, paternity or non-paternity of Pierre Trudeau, most of the people involved in these separatist actions were actually just, by their own request, deported to Cuba. Huh. They're not Cubans, but they were deported to Cuba. 
some were some were tried and then were released. And there's sort of like a lot of our leftists from the 1960s. They were released after fairly lenient sentences for things like robberies, bombings, kidnappings, and go on to live perfectly, you know, comfortable lives in the open. So that scares people in 1970. And so it gets replaced with this Emergencies Act in 1988, which has never been invoked before yesterday. The thing for which you would think it would have been invoked, but it wasn't in very recent history, was the 2014 Parliament shooting in Ottawa. Okay, so there have there have been arrests for things like carrying open containers of alcohol in Ottawa now in 2022, but not for anyone trying to shoot at ministers of the government, which happened in 2014, and there was no need to invoke a, a, an emergency of public order. Okay, under this 1988 Emergencies Act. So you would have you would have thought that maybe for 9-11, maybe for 2014, something would have been invoked. No, not until we had we had the truckers and the street hockey and the bouncy castles. Does this get invoked? So that is why, in addition to his tone, Trudeau's tone, especially, but also some of his ministers, in addition to that. I am also worried about escalation because of how they are handling this and the way that they are defaming, really uh, libeling, slandering the protesters in 2022, which they didn't do. And, and we get this in the United States. It, everyone's very careful if it could be a Muslim that does the shooting. But if it appears to be a white male of military age, suddenly we've got like a racist insurgency on our hands. And I mean, we've we've seen exactly the same thing, really, in the January 6th events mm -hmm. um, from 2021, the same extreme rhetoric for things that, you know, uh, you know, otherwise we get memory hold events. Right. So there was a shooting in Boulder, Colorado by a guy that said he was radicalized by the Internet um, to hate Americans. He's a Syrian immigrant, I think a Muslim. Was he the nobody one on the even, MI6 watch list? Was that the one just recently? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but nobody even remembers that that happened. Yeah. Right. There so was similarly, in the last two months and it was, right. it was, if yeah. you're listening to this and you're not Canadian, you probably didn't know or totally forgot about 2014 and that there was a shooting in their parliament, you know? So, and you wouldn't know that from Justin Trudeau. There's, there's no link being drawn. So these, these are things where, yeah, I'm worried by the escalation, both legally and rhetorically that has only increased as time has gone on without any semblance of shame or the sense that there could be misunderstanding or that he is seeking to understand them or his ministers are seeking to understand them. It's really just pure defamation. I, Look I at know, these racists, you know? I, I know that like our listeners and, and even as I say it, it's like, it's just hard to believe it's true, but like, but there are, there is a good percentage of human beings in, in any given population base right now that still only gets information from the TV. And I know that's hard to believe. Like they, they, they maybe go on Facebook, maybe, but they, yeah. they do not see that the internet provides an alternate source of information to the mainstream. And so there is a good percentage, I don't know what it is, but it's not tiny, of Canadians who actually think this is a terrorist insurgency because they're watching only the television, which is telling them this. And my question a little bit is, like, does Trudeau fall into that camp? Do, do they actually believe their own mythology at this point? Or are they aware of what they're doing? Because the, the guy looks like a kid. 
I'm not. I mean, he looks yeah. so scared right now, and it's like yeah. he really thinks this is that, that's that's my read again. What do you think? I think I think that like our now, I would I would also note that we we are differently positioned on our political spectrum. So we have we have probably more people of sincerely right wing conviction as a percentage nationally, certainly than Canadians do. Also, our political debate is different, right? So we didn't have we didn't have a situation like this in, say, the state of California or the state of New York, because the nature of lockdowns, mandates, and restrictions has never anywhere in the United States equaled what it was. Certainly, even vis-a-vis churches, even in supposedly conservative places of Canada, such as Alberta, right? right? So we have a slightly different political spectrum. Therefore, we also, I think, have greater skepticism toward the government. And we also don't have an explicitly government funded media that, it, that, that had, I mean, like an NPR is not comparable to the CBC or the BBC or right. in Australia, the right. ABC, it doesn't have any kind of the same legitimacy or authority. And it's not, so we don't have a kind of broadcaster of record. And I think that is also significant because if the broadcaster of record says, along with in in Canada's case, you know CTV, right? So you're kind of your 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 networks that are always going to be adjacent in some way to governmental power. If they say that something is the case, then it is the case in the minds of some enormous percentage of people, even with the attachment, especially of older generations in the United States, to networks or even cable network news. We already, as soon as we had cable, began to have very obvious political divisions between networks. Like, I, to me, this this analogy is just for the Lutherans. It's not like the Missouri Synod is better than the Wisconsin Synod. It's just that we disagree more openly. And I look at other English-speaking countries as kind of like the Wisconsin Synod. There's more of a pretense of agreement. And because there's more of a pretense of agreement, there is, to some degree, more actual agreement. Okay, because you're dealing with smaller markets, fewer people, it's easier to achieve consensus. The United States is just huge and more open about its disagreements. That's how I look at it media wise. Right. What that doesn't mean is that there aren't between these church bodies and the analogy or in in the kind of foregrounded situation politically. That doesn't mean that there aren't enormous numbers of people that agree with, you know, us and our listeners. Right in Ontario, in Alberta, in Prince Edward Island, for goodness sake, right? And that agreement exists because we're dealing with the same conditions of life. We're not necessarily agreeing. I mean, (laughs) I think it's kind of remarkable how much weaker Justin Trudeau, who is objectively better looking and way younger than Joe Biden, looks i mean joe yeah, biden yeah. when he when he gets upset with us you know the unvaccinated you're facing a severe winter of illness and death and your families are going to hate you or whatever it was that they said you know joe biden at least sincerely looks angry trudeau looks whiny yeah. or upset scared. and he looks scared. yeah and, and so that along with his invocation of unusual constitutional but unprecedented powers is really the best argument for the fact that he is actually Pierre Trudeau's son. Okay. Yes. Yes. Reg- regardless- I, I want to come to that. I want to come to that. <laughs> because regardless of physiognomic comparisons you could make, his mother's known adulteries, all of these things, and the theory that therefore he is Fidel Castro's son, say what you will about Fidel Castro. 
When faced with crises in his regime, he rarely looked this weak. Yes, amen to that. Amen. Yeah. I want to get there, but I you, you brought up Biden, and yeah. you know, for comparison, uh, just just for the record, really here, every week he's looking less in control of himself. He is he is rambling. He yeah. is saying things that are strange. He's speaking very slowly now right. and so it's a different kind of weakness but he will you're right he was just on this interview i forget uh, who the interviewer was but he's a guy who is on biden's side he's not against the the, the mainstream uh and he asked a question about inflation and biden man he got heated you know he, he wasn't afraid to remember his old his old ways but but in terms of uh, a world leader uh, that looks like they're about to fall over. You know, which of these two guys topples first? I, I think it's a it's a crapshoot there. Um, but I'll have you know, Doctor Kuntz, that the fact checkers did their work, and Justin Trudeau is not <laughs> Fidel Castro's son, and it is lunatic that you would ever make a meme I making know. fun of this because that might be understood to be true, and that is fascism or something like that. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, um, last week we got sort of a you know. Equivalent of, you know, no, Barack Obama was actually born on American soil type of article, putting to rest all theories that Justin Trudeau is Fidel Castro's son. So to be fair, also, the the image is uncanny. I mean, he really does look like him. He really does look like him. (laughs) And he looks a lot more like him than he looks like Pierre Trudeau. And generally, males pass on physical resemblance more strongly than females. That's just kind of a genetics thing. But who am I to say, and on some level, except for the memes, what does it matter? But he does resemble Pierre Trudeau in his actions because Trudeau's, Pierre Trudeau's assertion that, you know, you needed, you needed unusual police powers, which are theoretically more curbed now than they were under the War Measures Act. Those unusual police powers, which of course, as they always do, as they did in both world wars, Justin Trudeau is promising us will be limited and localized and only for certain purposes, good purposes. Those powers are things that were invoked by Pierre as they as they are being by Justin uniquely in Canadian history. So there is no uh, no lineage from Castro ideologically here. Well, ideologically, you'd have to in, in order to to make a distinction between Pierre Trudeau, the father, certainly the legal father and Fidel Castro, you would have to accept something that I no longer accept, which is that somehow the left, as it grew up in the 60s and 70s in the West, with also its social and sexual politics, advocacy of feminism, advocacy of divorce, advocacy of the destruction of the family in various ways within state policy, that that is somehow distinct from communism. and. There are cases that have a different source on the left historically in which I could say that's true. So a guy that I mentioned already, Tommy Douglas, who came up through what was the CCF and is now the New Democratic Party. Yeah, sure. You know, he or people in the Labor Party, they're really in favor of labor unions or of general strikes as a tactic. That strain of thought is really, really only exists on the right at this point in Western countries. Because if you actually work for a living with your hands and you resist a policy promulgated by a leftist government in a Western country, you will, you will and the truckers are being denounced as fascists. 
Or they'll say, well, you're not really a worker because you own your own truck. <laughs> so you're not really a worker because you're not subject to overwhelming corporate power or something, you know? And so, for example, you know, the current leader of the New Democratic Party, which is still positioned to the left, technically, of Trudeau's Liberal Party, the current leader, Jagmeet Singh, will say, you know, theoretically, for the purpose of civil liberties, I oppose the Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act. But practically, I want all of these truckers to be dispersed anyway, you know, so like, there is no option any longer on the left for people that would be leftist, let's say in some economic sense, but not leftist in the way that we identify it with the destruction of the family, the, the, you know, the villainization of males, especially of male workers, a certain racial politics where if you oppose them, you are racist. All of those things, I, I mean, yeah, theoretically in the 1960s, that was a distinction. Our left was not communist necessarily. Now it's kind of hard to see that. It's kind of hard to see a difference. So whether he is biologically Pierre Trudeau's son or Fidel Castro's son, the ideological inheritance, I think, is the same. Yeah, right, right. They're moving yeah. in the same direction. Right. And um, I don't know if this really connects, but I think it does. Uh, and it's it's old news and it's tired news, but but it's still, it's there. And that's the Neil Young, Neil Young Joe Rogan thing, mm-hmm. where you have this, this rock star of the left. I mean, that's what the guy was, uh, freedom right. of, yep. uh, of speech to her. You know, it's all about sticking it to the man. Mm-hmm. And now in his, in his bloody old age, uh, he wants to make sure no one disagrees with him on Spotify right. ever. Right. Right. It's really something. Right. And, and that, that shows you something about the, let's say modern left, certainly the post 1960s left in any Western country, which is that it has a combination of cultural power and now also of hard political power, the power to deploy militarized police forces, the power also to deploy the military, although they don't really need to do that if the police have armored personnel carriers, right, on the streets of Ottawa, perhaps. That combination has always been funded by certain forms of financial power which are the reason that we're using Quigley as a framework, at least this year, because Quigley in 1965 identified these things. And that has always been the case. So when Neil Young was you know, singing Southern Man, he was opposing an extremely objectively popular governor of Alabama. Okay. And, actually, you know, and, and so this is where you get the distinction, which is very important to the modern left between democracy as something they will invoke and populism, which is, that's just when someone gets popular in a way that they don't like. That's all that that means. And so Trump was a populist and George Wallace was a populist and the truckers are populists and populism is racist and misogynist and anti-immigrant and transphobic and whatever, you know, denunciation term du jour. Whereas when we say things, even if they're not popular or people don't even understand what it means, like LGBTQ plus, 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 still that's democratic. And we must ensure 
that democracy does not die in darkness. Right. And this, this sounds like um, Marcusa here. So you just change the words to mean what you want them to mean. Democracy right. is mm-hmm. the right ideas from the left that win. And populism <laughs> is conservative democracy that needs to lose. And uh, that that's just the way that it is. Um, we got two angles we can go on here. I think I think I yeah. want to hit first um, the cowardice of the conservatives here. It sounded like, at least on the floor today, uh, that some conservatives are beginning to speak back and cause a little bit of a ruckus in Canada. But certainly yeah. throughout the 2020 reality, and this goes for the United States as well, it's not like the rhinos have been out front with the resistance exactly, right? right? It's It's been the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know... Conservatives have different colors, party colors in, in different Western countries. So, you know, it's generally confusing that they're they're blue in the UK and, and maybe in other, you know, parliamentary systems. They're red in the United States. So we have red states. But I think that the color of self-described conservatives, certainly conservatives in any kind of power in Western countries, is really just white, as in a white flag. Because in Canada, you have you heard in the clip Candace Bergen, who is a a, new, a very new leader of the Conservative Party in Parliament. She replaced Aaron O'Toole, who was less amenable to the truckers. But Bergen has also called for the truckers to disperse and to protest in other means. So there is always this reluctance simply to side with people, and this is, I think. This extends into all kinds of realms of life. It's not just in national politics in a given country, but it's as if like by constitution, by their nature, conservatives are people who are, who are wary above all things of some degree of chaos or uncertainty and of not being seen to be respectable people. Right. So I'm, I'm analyzing them as people, not not primarily according to what they say, because what they reveal by their actions is that they're more worried about appearing to side with anyone viewed or even discussed, I would say defamed as rowdy. That's that's worse. That is worse than the preservation of an essentially leftist order, always moving farther left at different rates that they want to be seen to be respectable within, right? And so we're very familiar with this because we're familiar with, you know, the log cabin Republicans going from totally fringe within the GOP to being, you know, trotted out front at various GOP functions as the GOP gradually goes silent on, you know, first the criminalization or decriminalization of sodomy and then the legalization of gay marriage. So there is, they're, they're more worried about appearing to side with, you know, quote, populist movements. Heaven forbid somebody in, you know, a jacket with mud on it should be seen next to you, then that you should not be seen as respectable by the left, right? So the conservative is just somebody who wants to be respectable to the left without himself being a leftist. That's why his flag is the white flag, I think. There's something in the nature of conservatism that desires honorable exchange that's just not there uh, in uh, in, the, <laughs> right. in, the, in the true populism of the left, which is yeah, uh, right. fight by any means possible. And so I think that's that's kind of the Achilles heel then. It is an attempt to preserve the honor in a fight without honor. 
and not realizing how underhanded the stakes have become at this point. Um, do you think that there is, I mean, uh, midterm elections are around the corner. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, d- Democrats retiring. <laughs> um, do you think that there is a, a new wind of conservatism abrew in the states, or is that all just a bunch of uh, hot air? I Certainly on a popular level, there is a recognition that apologizing to people that despise you is never a good idea. They're going to want to kill you anyway. The question is, is, is not, I think, so much what could occur or what average people think about, like, should happen in life as what will people who actually run for office, wield power, take donations, what will they actually do? Because the thing that you can see is, you know, I mean, not coincidentally, the first two places in Canada to ease mandates and restrictions or to do away with them altogether are places governed by members of the Conservative Party, right? Prairie provinces, historically very conservative places relative to the rest of Canadian politics. Ask yourself about the fact that they had restrictions that, practically speaking, no American state, however left-wing, has, okay? What are they responsive to? Well, they're responsive to the truckers. I mean, the truckers, a man whom uh, I had admired beforehand, but now just completely love, I hope one day to meet Pastor Harold Risto was out there. He's a professor at the uh, our sister churches, yeah, seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario, a chaplain in Afghanistan, was out there praying at the War Memorial in Ottawa. I mean, what a guy, you know? These people are changing the world. And they are changing the world. Note, they are changing the world also for governments that are ostensibly very right-wing in their country's own political terms. So notice that right wing and left wing don't matter outside of concrete action, right? You're voting for the right wing. What are you getting if you live in Alberta up until like two weeks ago? You're getting vaccine passports in an ostensibly right wing, freedom loving province built on oil money. Can you imagine doing that in Texas? Why can't you imagine that? It's because people feel pressure. They feel like they can't get away with that. Not even in California yet, right? So if people like these truckers don't in Texas and California and Alberta put pressure on people, then not even ostensibly right wing governments will do what conservative people want. Right. You you have to. The question is always what kind of pressure will be put on rulers, especially in oligarchic democracies such as we live in. Right. So, yeah, I can imagine lots of amazing things happening in the United States. I know that if I'm governing a red state in the United States, I'm looking at Florida. I'm seeing what he's getting yeah. away with there. Yeah. If I'm governing a purple state like a Colorado or a Michigan, I'm looking at what happens to other people in purple states or what blue states can't even get away with, let alone a purple state. So, yeah, I the it's not like the elites are completely unresponsive. They're just not responsive generally to reasonable behavior carefully lodged comments, because even if you speak in turn at the school board meeting, you will be denounced as a domestic terrorist. So in these kinds of drastic situations, we need people to do things that while peaceful are a great deal more drastic than anything that's happened before. It seems like the language they know is power, 
right? And so yeah. when they face power, they, they, they will actually respond. So maybe I can segue this a little bit here. I mean, mm-hmm. speaking of theoretical right wings and those who understand power, Russia's got a lot of troops on the Ukrainian border. Yeah. And that could lead to to some, what, destruction of normal people's lives? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about that as wagging the dog from the Biden administration just trying to blow smoke? Is this a real thing we should worry about? And can we go from this into how World War I uh, impacted things that you want to kind of compare to today? Well, yeah, we, we can very easily because not only are the American and Canadian governments involved in a, an enormous amount of posturing in Ukraine. And I call it posturing because we'll say one thing and then do another thing. And then even Zelensky, the the president of Ukraine will ask us like, where did you get that accusation about the Russians? <laughs> you know, and right. we're supposedly right. on his side is that the, the way, the ways in which our government is faring well or poorly. And I would say diplomatically, we're faring extremely poorly in Eastern Europe in the past year. We're saying one thing, we're doing another, we're, we're, I mean, we, little known facts. We have Florida National Guard troops acting as advisors in different parts of former Warsaw Pact. I mean, we have all kinds of strange things going on as we usually do. Okay. But our capacity actually to follow through on any of that, I am in serious doubt about because when the Russians invaded the overwhelmingly Russian speaking parts of the Ukraine in the past 10 years, we have done nothing practically because we know it would be disastrous and we don't have the will to do so. That is the same for me kind of test case as the truckers, just with a lot less bearing on average people's lives. I hope, because I hope no one from Iowa has to go die in the Ukraine. Okay. Now in the first world war, which is the source and will be go- that's why we'll be going there in a great more detail after we wrap up some of the stuff about finance. In the First World War, the source of similar kinds of suffering to unvaccinated Canadians were being experienced by especially Ukrainian Canadians, of which there are a very large number because they were asked to settle there in the prairie provinces, as well as German Canadians, including our co-religionists, okay? So the reason that Lutheran Church Canada has disproportionately many congregations in Western Canada is because that's largely, largely, but not entirely where Germans settled. Among these, a a guy, Word Fitly Spoken, did an episode about, um, we've talked about on the Discord. So some of you are now familiar with Alfred Raywinkle. The War Measures Act okay, which was invoked by Pierre Trudeau is replaced by the Emergencies Act, although it very much resembles the Emergencies Act. Justin Trudeau is now invoking the War Measures Act existed to do things like strip, if need be, according to the judgment of the government, citizens or immigrants from foreign powers of any semblance of civil rights, okay, the ability to have your church open. Does any of this stop me if this sounds familiar? Your church is open. You can vote freely. You can do what you want freely. You can educate your children in your own language. And so because the Prairie Provinces had a, you know, the lion's share of people from Ukraine, especially what's now the Western part of Ukraine was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So that's, that's an opposing power in World War I. The Germans are obviously citizens of either the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the German Empire or they're naturalized. And in wartime, what's the difference between a German who's a Canadian on paper and a German who's not a Canadian on paper? They're both Germans, 
right? So when civil rights are stripped, that gets treated also under a law passed in 1914 and then reactivated during the Second World War and then invoked in 1970. That gets treated as an exceptional case. So it's an exceptional case that when the government finds you inconvenient, you will be interned, right? So sort of, I mean, and this happens, Japanese Canadians get interned in the Second World War, but still, even then, German Canadians, there's just more of them. So they're gonna, there's going to be more of them interned. Ha- same thing happens in the US, Japanese, German, Italian, Americans all get interned, not in the same proportions, but they all do. In the First World War, it's going to be Ukrainians and Germans in Canada. But you know, if you become inconvenient, there go your civil rights. There goes your sense that you can join this country on paper. There goes your sense that you can disagree with people politically in a peaceful way. When that kind of thing happens, you're taught this as if it's, again, exceptional, right? Like this is an unusual time. And then in many cases with Ukrainian Canadians or Japanese Americans or whatever, eventually someone probably from the government apologizes like 50 years later. I really think that you should look at these things as not exceptions, but just as it, as the set of things they could do to you. You should look at things like what we all remember maybe about like 1997 in the United States. Everybody's getting wealthier, stock market's going up. We're not focused on, certainly the media is not focusing on us on racial animosity in the United States. No one's suggesting pulling down statues of Robert E. Lee, but also no one's unironically a Nazi in the United States, like in any kind of proportion, like none of that is going on. Everything's getting better. We're at peace. You know, the biggest scandal in the United States is that the president is taking advantage of his interns. Okay. So it's kind of unserious. You should see the 90s or the late 1950s or something. That's exceptional (laughs) because that's not showing you the full spectrum of the things that the government, even in a representative democracy, whatever, could do or would do or does do. Okay. 1997 is completely unusual. So if you have nostalgia for the 1950s or the 1990s or whatever, your childhood, whatever, that really should be seen as exceptional because this is the full range of stuff that they, even just on the books, in the case of the Emergencies Act or whatever, just on the books, these are things we could do these things. These are things that we could do. And there are always legal niceties attached to them, right? There were in the First World War. But guess what? It turns out that historically, legal niceties don't matter. Or sure, you can throw that into court and you can say, and people are saying that, you know, the truckers do not constitute anything conceivably of a threat to public order. It doesn't matter. You know what? Right now, it doesn't matter. Okay. Because this is on the books. They can do this and they're going to do it unless someone stops them right? It doesn't matter that it's illegal right now because they're just going to try it. (laughs) So you need some other way to stop it unless you're just going to wait to resolve it legally, which probably isn't going to happen because they're just going to do it, right? So all of those little, those guards and stuff, I think that preserves the illusion that somehow this is exceptional. This is not exceptional. It's just not common. Those are different things. What definitely seems to be new um, in the narrative of control is the ongoing emergency. 
mm-hmm. that, yeah. that the exceptional is not exceptional, except we're still going to call it exceptional. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and so right. we have these these ever escalating emergency powers. You know, you have a question. I think it's a good one. What should an emergency protect? Uh, I want to kind of contrast that with I can't remember where the ruling was, but it, it was out of uh, a, a court in the U.S. in the last year. Um, and the ruling came down that there, there is no such thing as an emergency power. Like any any um, executive office that just claims, well, it's an emergency, so I can do this now. Uh, right. They're acting illegally. But as you're pointing out here, again, like they're going to get away with whatever they get away with. Right. That's what kings do. Uh, so, yeah, take it from there. Yeah. If they're not, I mean, if they're not opposed. So two things that were emergencies prior to the expiration of exemption from vaccine mandates at the U.S.-Canada border. Okay. So on January 1st, there were two declared emergencies that you probably didn't know or care about. One is that according to some U.S. health authorities, racism is a public health emergency in the United States. Probably some of the listeners remember that. Okay, I do. That's such oh, goodness racism. Okay, racism is a public health emergency. In Canada, on January 1st, and since 2019, actually, Canada was in a state, along with many other signatory nations, of a climate emergency, a climate emergency. So this is whatever, this is still in the realm of, you know, uh, crazy internet conspiracy theorist stuff. So it's probably going to happen somewhere is that even before there were Chinese style lockdowns worldwide for the coronavirus, we were talking, our governments were talking, even provincial governments, let alone the federal government in Canada, we're talking about a climate emergency. And not enough people know, you know, Middle Eastern modern history or Latin American modern history, in which case, in what we used to call banana republics, because it was like a joke, because we can't grow those in the US or Canada. So we don't have problems like this. In a banana republic, the emergency is ongoing so that the powers can be ongoing, so that the justification for the things that they're doing to you can be ongoing. That's what emergencies are for. Emergencies are not for things like shootings in parliament in 2014. That's not an emergency. That's not a national emergency. Emergencies are not for things like, you know, the Muslim population of the United States, which has doubled since 9-11. Those are not emergencies. Emergencies are racism, climate, COVID-19, things for which and over which they want to exercise power. That's what an emergency is for. So when you hear the word emergency, just check your pockets because you know what's coming next, right? And you know, and it, part of the justification for the, the, the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and certainly part of all the rhetoric surrounding the ambassador bridge between Windsor and Detroit, but also surrounding as if somehow it produces wealth surrounding the truckers occupying Parliament Hill in Ottawa, part of that justification is that it's, it's economically hurting Canadians. Well, do you remember when they said that about lockdowns? <laughs> you know, concretely, many of us lost jobs. Many of us saw things that we needed are, are gone. If, you know, and if they're not gone, there are shortages of them. All kinds of things jammed up, permanent economic damage to all of us because of lockdowns. Nobody said that, you know, that was not, that was not, oh, well, we, we, we're going to end this for, for economic reasons. I mean, if you, if you mentioned lockdowns in connection with people's livelihood, 
you were Ron DeSantis or worse, you know? But as soon as we have guys parking their trucks in front of a building that makes laws, I mean, what what exactly just does Justin Trudeau make that I need to buy? Suddenly, economics and people's livelihoods have everything to do with everything. So when you hear about your pocketbook, just understand that it's really about their pocketbook. Hmm. And then a lot of the rhetoric becomes a lot clearer. So to maybe take a turn for some positive here as, as yeah. we uh, wrap this up a little bit. Um, we got we got two comments that you've made here. The brittleness of managers, the strength mm-hmm. of love, and mm-hmm. the question, who will be the fathers? And, and yeah. I think those are very, very connected here. Yeah. It's, a, it's a theme we've been pushing the whole way is that you can watch this madness far away and you can sit there and make a comment about it. You can retweet it. You can get mad. You can pray. That's a good yeah. thing, actually. Yeah. But at some point, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Because I want to start with who will be the fathers as a question, because metaphysically, this is the way the universe is set up. This is the way that our world is set up is around fatherhood as the locus of authority. Um, that's what we know from the fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. You might have a school teacher. You might have a king. You might have a prime minister with a governor general with a queen above that. You might have a variety of forms in which government is actually carried out, but it it derives from fatherhood. And fatherhood involves protective and sympathetic and fostering love, right? So the father is not there to just, you know, beat up his kid. The father is not there to make his children slaves. He is there to train them, to nurture them, to discipline them for their good and with limits so that they are not harmed, killed, certainly. Authority is authorship. It provides new creative life. Obviously, if your livelihood is actually being destroyed by something, the person who's above you or in authority technically is not, does not care about you, is not your father in any sense. He's, he's just a commander of some kind. Okay. And he, He will, if need be, according to his predilection, send you to your death. What I think is so powerful about the bouncy castles and the pastor praying at the war memorial, who has lots to lose by doing that in public on camera, what is so powerful about the American truckers showing up at the border to support the Canadians, what is so powerful about the people that drove to Ottawa is that they, like a father, have nothing to gain by doing this for themselves, right? Because the father's love is like the love of God, always self-emptying. It doesn't need to be there, right? Strictly speaking, it is what it is, even when it's in politics, when it's a prime minister. So someone whose statue they toppled last year because of the, the, the allegation that you know there is some kind of ongoing forever conspiracy against Indians in Canada, what are now called First Nations, used to be called Indians, against Indians in Canada. So they, they first spray painted, defaced, and then toppled in Ottawa itself violently statues of really the father of their country, John MacDonald. They're George Washington, okay? So don't be surprised if this happens to George Washington too. He is the father of his country. There is no Canada without him, 
Okay. That, that tells you volumes. Go find his statue defaced and pulled down and Trudeau supported it. And it was violent and things were burned and churches have been burned because of allegations that turn out to be insubstantial about somehow we were destroying the lives of all Indians. And it was a, it was a conspiracy to destroy them as a people. It was a genocidal conspiracy. Okay. And we just haven't heard the same things in American politics because our Indian population is much smaller relative to the rest of the country. So, so there's that you want to destroy the father of your country. The people who are showing up in Ottawa, in other places, in, you know, Cowts, Alberta, who are at the Ambassador Bridge, who dispersed peacefully when requested, those people have, like fathers do, everything to lose by hazarding what they're doing in nurturing life, okay? So the question in the welfare of a family, a church, a country is always, will there be fathers? That's always the question collectively. That's always the question. The way that you can tell that our regimes and sometimes our families and our churches are destined to fail is because we don't have fathers, we have managers. We have people who are there for their own financial benefit, their own political clout, their own social clout, their own sense of themselves. And what that causes is brittleness, right? Because when a father is challenged, he is a combination of unperturbed and saddened, okay? He's unperturbed because he knows that, you know, maybe he's just being challenged because the kid doesn't want to accept discipline, but he's also saddened that there is conflict, obviously, because he loves the kid, right? So he doesn't want the conflict to be forever, and he doesn't want the child to be rejected, but he also doesn't want to be ashamed of an undisciplined son or ashamed of a daughter who rebels against him or whatever the case may be. A father will especially in a, in a tragic situation, react in certain predictable ways because he loves. A manager who is not a father does not react with love. He reacts with rage, shock, because he has no sense of fallibility. He has no sympathy. So it, you know, whoever Justin Trudeau's actual biological father is, he's behaving as if he is a foreigner to these people showing up, They've got the hockey sticks. They've got the saunas. They've got, the, these are actual Canadians. <laughs> I should not, I mean, if I showed up, you know, if, if I, if I had been, you know, in Washington on January 6th, you know, I don't know if I go, you know, put my feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, but these are my own people. I mean, I have a certain sympathy with them. I, I mean, when I see Canadians, I recognize these people. I know these kinds of people. I certainly know Lutheran pastors, you know, so I see Pastor Risto. I love this man. You know, I've never met him, but I love him. I have this sympathy with him. If you are actually someone's father, if you deserve to be the father of a country, if you deserve to be in government or the father of a family or the pastor of a church or whatever, don't you love the people that you're supposed to be governing or helping or caring? Don't you love them? So you can tell that there is no fatherhood in that government because there is no love, right? It, love doesn't mean, doesn't, it doesn't even mean that you agree with everything somebody does or that everyone in the crowd in Ottawa is like morally pure or something, even though many of them are, you know, uh, they know the Lord's prayer, you know, <laughs> so there's that, you know, uh, that's good. That's better than not. But you can tell that Trudeau is no father because he has no love. He reacts with brittle anger. 
And, you know, however he is deposed, he deserves to be deposed because if you're going to have a government, you need to have fathers. You need, and that, that goes for the microcosm. You need to have fathers of a family if you're going to have a functioning government. But even if you have those on the macrocosm, on the scale of the national government, the provincial government, whatever it is, you need to have people who behave as fathers. They need, they need to care and to love above all things so they don't treat their own people as enemies. Yeah. Yeah. A nation that hates its fathers cannot be a nation. Uh, a people that hates its sire cannot be a people. It will disperse one way or the other. And so it behooves mm -hmm. whoever is there, wherever you are, to take ownership of the need for sacrifice that you see around you, to put love into action as loyalty, to reject rent-seeking and shocked rage and the need for it to be fair for me, and to believe that we've all been put here instead uh, to buttress those who are beneath us, not to benefit from them in some way. And, you know, what does that mean crystal ball wise for uh, Western democracies as we currently see them? I mean, the, the writing's on the wall, I think, but uh, I keep praying that maybe there'll be some sort of reformation. Uh, yeah. Closing thoughts? I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, it, it makes me so hopeful for the future to see people caring so much about the future. You're listening to Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. Are you wondering where my sermons went? Or where Saturday morning chill went? Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out.